I noticed that as we prayed for one another, we prayed in um, numerous different ways. Some of us asking, some of us even commanding. And um, when we command things in prayer, we're not, I want to clarify, we're not demanding anything that God does anything. What we're doing is we're exercising faith, which is what um, God honors. Uh, when you read the Gospels, it's a common theme that Jesus says to someone, go, your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. And um, this is a bonus. This is not part of the sermon. But uh, I just, I've been wanting to share with you for a while because this is it's kind of connected. This, the message this morning is going to come out of my trip to Israel. I've been actually really excited to, to bring this message for, for a couple of years. Uh, but one of the things that I learned in Israel was, you, you know that story in the Gospels where the woman reaches out and touches, the, this, NIV says, the hem of his robe? Well, the literal word in Hebrew is the tassel. So they would have a tassel on the four corners, and the tassel is, uh, <clears throat> it can be translated tassel or wing. There's two words that mean the same thing. And there was a prophecy about the Messiah in Micah that says there would be healing in his tassels or wings. You know the lyric of the hymn that we sing, risen with healing in his wings? That's what that's talking about. And so when you read in the Gospels, there's multiple, this woman isn't the only one, there's other points where it says they all went up to him and touched the hem of his robe and they were all healed. What was happening what there was, they were recognizing this man is the Messiah that's been promised and one of the things that was prophesied about the Messiah was that there would be healing in his tassels. And so it was the exercise of their faith. There's nothing miraculous about a tassel. It's that they were recognizing it's Jesus, it's the Messiah, and exercising their faith. So that's what we're doing when we reach out and we're bold in prayers. We're saying, Jesus, you are the restorer of all things. You are God's Messiah, and we reach out with faith. Yeah? Okay. So... Um, the message this morning is going to come to us from four different Gospels. Um, we just finished a study of the book of 1 Corinthians through the lens of consecration or uh, being set apart for the Lord. And we're going to transition into a new season. And this message will actually really perfectly transition us and you'll see why in a few minutes. But what we're going to do is we're going to turn to um, each of the gospel accounts of the Last Supper. So today's Palm Sunday, which is marks the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. But here at Gold, we don't have a like a Monday, Thursday, or a Good Friday service, and so we really want to highlight or look at the the events of the Last Supper and the night of Jesus' death on the Sunday before Easter, and usually. The one of us who's bringing the messages is focusing on Jesus' suffering, but this year really felt led to look at the events of the Last Supper and to hone in on something Jesus is doing there that has profound significance for us. And the reason I want to read from 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then a separate section from John, is because each of the gospel writers takes just a diff- little different angle on what's happening here. So I'm going to start with Matthew uh, 26, verse 26 to 29. And this Last Supper, as you, as you most will know, is the Jewish Passover, right? The meal that celebrates God's deliverance from bondage to slavery in Egypt that he had commanded them to keep as a remembrance of who he was and what he'd done. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, or the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. From Mark 14, starting at verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he'd given thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. From Luke 22, starting at verse 21. Sorry, starting at verse 15. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment In the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then these words from John 14, which are recorded right after they've finished celebrating the Passover together. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also 
may be where I am. God's word. When you read the New Testament, almost every book of the New Testament seems to expect or to anticipate Jesus is coming back soon. There is this sense of imminence, like we need to be ready. He's coming back and he's coming back soon. And frankly, it can be a little bit puzzling when you read it, when we're reading it 2,000 years later. Why did they all think Jesus was coming back so soon? When you read the New Testament, you also see that the body of Christ saw themselves as Jesus' bride. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, he's talking about husbands and wives and all of a sudden he says, this is a great mystery, but I'm not talking about husbands and wives, I'm talking about Christ and the church. All of a sudden he's describing Christ and the church as husband and wife in this picture of intimacy. John, when he's writing the book of Revelation, says that it culmin- that his vision culminates at the wedding Supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So the New Testament has this imminent expectation of Jesus' return, and it also has this picture of Jesus' body as his bride. Where did these things come from? Where did this imminent expectation of Jesus' return and this sense of You know, there are many images or metaphors for what we are as believers. The scripture calls us the house of God, the building of God. It calls us the body of Christ. It says we're children of God. Many ways of describing what we are. We're sons and daughters of the kingdom. But this image of the bride, married to Jesus, intimate language, where did it come from? Well, in order for us to, uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to see where it came from this morning. And in order for us to understand where it came from, I need to tell you a little bit about a Galilean wedding ceremony. So, I imagine that when Craig and Sarah got uh, engaged, I'm not going to ask you to tell your story, but that when you got engaged, it didn't happen in a room full of people. I'm just guessing. Occasionally in the West, people propose at baseball games or basketball games or, you know, big events. But by and large, proposals are private affairs that usually happen alone. Typically, a man will get down on bended knee or uh, somehow or another express his love and desire to spend the rest of his life with this woman and ask her to marry him, etc., It wasn't the case for a Galilean wedding or for a Galilean engagement that it was a private affair. This is how a Galilean engagement would take place. There would have been conversations between families ahead of time, arranging and agreeing, negotiating. Could your son and my daughter get married and what would that mean and 
You know, when would that take place and what would we exchange and what would be involved in bringing them together? And there would actually be a covenant that was drafted, like a written legal agreement. And when they wanted to enact that legal agreement, both parties would come and they would meet on a given day in town and they would go to the gate of the town where the elders who could oversee the matters of the town would be and they would gather together and as soon as this began to happen, the whole town would come out to watch because it it was always the talk of the town, the most exciting thing. There's an engagement taking place, let's go! And anybody who could would take off and, and would would come running in and then you would you would see a crowd gather around and you'd have one set of parents with their child standing here and another set of parents with their child standing here across from them and in the presence of the elders a scroll would be unrolled and the father of the groom would read the covenant proposal to the parents of the bride. And after it was read in its entirety, he would say, do you accept the terms of this covenant? And they would say, yes, we do. And then would come the moment where everybody around would hold their breath. Because when the covenant terms had been read and accepted, then... the groom would be handed a pitcher and a cup. And he'd pour that cup and he would take it and he would reverently, tenderly, maybe fearfully, hold the cup out to his possible bride-to-be. And in this moment and in this regard, A Galilean wedding is very unique and very different than all other weddings in the ancient Near East. And I haven't mentioned this yet, so I need to tell you, all Jesus' disciples, except for Judas, were from Galilee. All the eleven others. And he always spoke to them in things they could understand. Okay? The the bride-to-be held the final authority and decision-making on whether this wedding would go forward or not. In this moment, when the cup is extended to her, she has the right and authority to push it away or to accept it. If she accepts it and drinks from the cup, the covenant is sealed. She then hands it back to him. He takes the cup from her He drinks from it, and then he says something to the effect of this. You are now consecrated to me in accordance with the laws of Moses, and I shall not drink from the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's house. And from that moment, 
right there, a new covenant has been established. And they are legally bound together as one. This is not an engagement like we think of engagement. This is an engagement that is on the uh, par with marriage. This could not be separated except by a legal divorce certificate called a get. And even that could only be initiated by the man only under very serious circumstances. They were bound together under a new covenant. And then they would joyfully separate and go on their way for approximately a year, each with their own very distinct set of responsibilities. The groom would go back and he would begin to purchase and negotiate for building supplies. And he would buy all that he needed to add a room onto his father's house. And he would build that room out upon his father's house and he would buy things to fill that room and to make it ready for his bride-to-be. And, ladies, you will love this one, he was responsible for all the preparations for the wedding. He had to buy and negotiate for all of the implements, all of the food, everything that would be used. The groom was responsible for preparing everything for the wedding. The bride was responsible for preparing herself. She was tasked, along with her bridesmaids, with beginning to purchase materials for a dress and making that dress. This could take many, many months because they weren't easily available and they had to wait for traveling merchants to come through and they acquired one piece at a time and finally when all the pieces were ready, they would have the dress made, she would make it, have it put together, and then she would wait in that dress for her groom to come and get her. Because here too, a Galilean wedding differs from all other weddings in the ancient Near East. Every other wedding would be agreed upon date and time approximately one year from the date of engagement. But a Galilean wedding didn't have a date and time. It was approximately one year. But when the son finished preparing for the wedding, all was ready. He'd go to his father and he'd say, Abba, I'm ready. I want to go get my bride now. And his Abba would say, Okay, I'll tell you when. And the son would wait for the father to say, go get your bride. Nobody knew. The groom did not know when he would go get his bride. The bride did not know when the groom was coming to get her. The town did not know when the wedding was be. Only the father 
of the groom, only the one who had initiated and read the terms of the covenant and who had made payment for the bride. I forgot to tell you about the gifts that they exchanged. But only the one who had read the covenant, who'd made it, who'd given the, the, the payment for the bride, only he knew when the groom would be released to go and get his bride. And in Galilee, that happened in the night. So the son would be asleep and his groomsmen with him because they're around the year mark. And his dad would wake him up and he'd say, Son, it's time. Go get your bride. And he'd leap up, already wearing his clothes. He'd grab his shofar, that's a ram's horn. His friends would grab theirs and they would rush out into the, the... dark of the night, and they'd begin to blow their ram's horns. And everybody in the town would know what it meant. A wedding is about to happen. The the groom and his groomsmen are going to get their bride. And all those who'd been invited and were ready and waiting would actually come out in the night and join the procession to go and get the bride. And they'd arrive at the bride's house And there she'd be waiting with her bridesmaids and they'd come out and he'd see her for the first time since their engagement had taken place. And he would go to her and he would tenderly greet her and he would help her get into a what's called a litter and she would be picked up and carried in the air back to her groom's home, to his father's house. And when they got there, and all the wedding celebrants who were going to celebrate with them got to the home, the door of the home would be closed behind them and would not open for seven days or seven nights for anyone. I can see on your faces that you, you can hear now what's happening as Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples. He's speaking to them in Galilean language that they can understand. And he is betrothing himself to them. He is saying, I initiate a new covenant. I make this promise to you. I will take you. I take you. And as they take that cup, they enter into that covenant with Him. And He's saying to them, you can be certain. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's home, there are many rooms. And the disciples understand themselves by taking that cup to be saying to Jesus, We are yours. We give ourselves to you. I didn't mention this earlier, but um, the word that, that means engagement in Hebrew is kiddushin. 
And it literally means sanctified, consecrated. So when bride and groom get engaged, the statement being made, when, when the groom says, you are now consecrated, you're kiddushin to me, you are set apart for me. You're mine. You belong to me and to no one else. And the, the bride in taking the cup is saying, yes, I am yours. All my affection, all my attention, all my, all that I am, I'm yours. In that culture, if someone would be unfaithful during the the time of preparation for the wedding, it was actually viewed as worse than adultery in the marriage. Because they took this set apart for each other so seriously. Friends, the entire the entire tea of our Christian life on this earth is that one year of waiting between bride and groom. The entirety of our life on this earth is one of preparing, of being kiddushin, of being set apart for, sanctified, of waiting, of anticipating, of preparing, of being ready for Jesus' return. And when we come to this table, and Pastor Gina is going to invite us to come to the table shortly, we can, we can come, and I want to hear us, I want us to hear um, three things that every one of us should hear. You know, I really wish, I'm just going to interrupt myself. Sometime it would be great if we had a Passover Seder, like a, a real full meal, because that really helps you to live more fully into not only what was uh, this, the, the um, symbolism, there's a lot more symbolism. They had four cups in the meal. Jesus was lifting up the third cup. But um, there's a fullness to it. You know, these, the, the, there's nothing lacking in Jesus, but just this little wafer, and sometimes it's hard to appreciate the fullness of what's there. As we're handed a cup, a little, little cup, as we're handed this, every time we receive this, here is what we can hear. Here is what the Lord is saying to each one of us. He's saying, you are eternally secure. I initiated this covenant. I am the only one who can break it. And I will not. We know that. He does not break covenant. He is not unfaithful. He says that to, through Paul to Timothy. They might be faithful, but I cannot be unfaithful. So the Lord, every time we receive this, He's saying, you are eternally secure. But He's also saying, 
you have a place in God or with God or in God's heart. I'm, when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and they say, well, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus goes on, you know where I came from? No, we don't know where you came from, Lord. What's he talking about, where I came from? If you go back to John 1, verse 18, at the very end of John, that section, it says that Jesus came from the Father's bosom. It gets translated side, but it means bosom or heart. It's the same place where the Apostle John had his head on Jesus at the Last Supper, on his bosom. So the scriptures say Jesus came from the Father's heart, full of grace and truth, to show the world this is what God is like. And Jesus says, that's the place I'm going back to. Yes, he's ruling on a throne. Yes, he's our our eternal high priest. But I'm going back to the Father's heart. And there's a place there. There's many rooms. There's a place there for you. You have eternal security. You have a place in the Father's heart. And you have a sure and certain hope. I am coming back. I will come to get you. I will bring you to be with me where I am. You're eternally secure. You have a place in the Father's heart. You have a sure and certain hope. And as you take this cup and you drink from it, these are the three things that you're saying back to the Lord. Lord, I am Kiddushin. I'm sanctified for you. I'm set apart for you. Lord, I will prepare. I will prepare myself. I will prepare my garments. Right? The scriptures talk about the white linen garments corresponding to the righteous deeds of the saints, to the holiness, the purity. I will prepare. And Lord, I will be ready. I won't be asleep. I'll be ready. I'll be awake. I'll be alert. I'll be expecting you. I think now we understand why the church appears at every point to be expecting, longing, looking forward to the return of King Jesus. How do we sustain that? I think we also understand why the scriptures speak of not allowing our love to grow cold. Why Jesus says, return to your first love. How do we sustain love? I don't think that that's a question that we're to answer right now. 
But I think it's a question that's really important for us to sit with and to wrestle with because it's really easy when your groom is along and coming. It's really easy to take the eyes of your heart off Kedushin, eagerly awaiting, actively preparing, focused on and waiting for the return of my groom. And so in a minute, we're going to sing the song, Even So Come, that speaks about what kind of a bride we'll be. But I'd, I'd just like, as the worship team comes forward, I'd just like to, to lead us into a, a, a prayer, asking the Lord to help us. Lord Jesus, uh, what we've heard this morning is at once the most joyful and the most sobering thing altogether. The covenant is sure. Your return is sure. The joy of longing for reunion is sure. We now understand why the church called communion Eucharisto, why it was joy. And at the same time, Lord, we want to recognize in your presence that because of the length of our wait, because of the troubles of this world, that it's easy for us to lose focus. It's easy, Lord, for us to become distracted. It's easy. And we don't want to be. We want, as we sang last week, Lord, that you are worthy of it all. We long day in and day out. As you look at us from heaven, we long for you to see a people that hunger and thirst for the return of their groom and that offer all that they are and all that they have to prepare. And so, Lord, we're asking, we're inviting your Holy Spirit, to cultivate that kind of preparation, expectation, perseverance in our hearts. And we pray that you do it co-mixed with the deepest of joy. We love you, Lord. We pray, hear us sing, hear us worship you now.